0: And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, that is Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we gather at your call and invitation and we are ready to hear from you. We are ready to know the one who helps us in our helplessness. The one who gives us hope in our hopelessness. Would you speak, O Lord, this morning? Your servants are listening. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. The Fountain of Youth is a legend that somewhere in this world exists a spring of water that if you drink of it, it will give you your youth back. It will end your aging and that endless, seemingly endless march towards death. Tales of this fountain have actually circulated for thousands of years and across many cultures. And though we live in more skeptical times about magic and legends and springs of water that could make us immortal, there is yet a pursuit for immortality to end the possibility of even death itself. Some scientists, even in our day, believe that technology will inevitably be able to bring this to pass either with reverse engineering aging in some way or by uploading our our minds, our consciousnesses up to a a digital platform in some way, shape, or form. The pursuit of the fountain of life continues still. And we'd be lying to say this morning that we don't understand this pursuit, that it's foreign to us in some way, especially for those of us who uh, begin to feel that childlike youth leaving us. Right, We have lumps, bumps, growths, aches, pains, thicker glass lenses, and perhaps stronger hearing aids that all remind us. I did forget herniated discs as well, as I know that is a special one here. It's close to home. But all these things remind us that you are mortal. You are mortal. We try diets, exercise plans, sleeping regimens, vitamins, supplements, you name it. All to extend life and maybe, just maybe, for a moment to fool ourselves to think that we will not face death. But there will come a day, and likely already has for many of us, where either disease or death has struck so near. And like a lightning bolt, the aftershock hits us even down to our bones. Where we know that death indeed is coming. That we are mortal. And pain has that distinct ability to show us this, as does uh, the death of a loved one. And our responses to it are often twofold. One, either we we buckle down, we go to the gym on Monday, right? We do more to try and live longer, or we do the opposite. We give into despair and hopelessness. This is the human experience, no matter where it is on the planet. But it's in this very experience where you and I, must have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of life himself. And because of that, he is worthy. He is worthy of faith that will cost you everything. Our text this morning picks up right where we left off last week. If you notice, Jesus enters into a boat and he very uneventfully moves back across the Sea of Galilee. Thanks, uh, thanks to God for the disciples' sake. Uh, they've been through the gambit so far in the last two uh, passages. But in verse 21, this massive crowd comes to Jesus. And remember, in Mark, the crowds are not helps to Jesus. He's not wanting crowds. Crowds are hindrances to Jesus. But verse 22 introduces Jairus, who shoves his way through the crowd, and he falls down before Jesus, interrupting him. Verse 23, Jairus sincerely begs Jesus to heal his little daughter, who is on her deathbed. If Jesus would just touch his daughter, then she'd be made well. Now, Jairus is no slouch. Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogue. That doesn't mean he's a rabbi, but it means as a ruler that he actually is taking care of the synagogue. He does maintenance. He cares for the building. He even finds the scrolls that they might be able to read from. He plans the worship. So he, in this community, is honored. He's a man of of high society, we might think. In verse 24, Jesus drops everything and goes with him, along with the crowd. And in verse 25, as we continue in our passage, it introduces a helpless woman. Now, this woman has had a menstrual bleeding for 12 years. Commentators speculate that perhaps from the ages of 12 to 14, when she would have begun this season of life, menstruation, that she simply just never stopped bleeding. That it's gone on from that time. And because of this, she's been unable to have children. Likely she's never married, or if married, she's been divorced. Worse yet, she is ceremonially unclean according to the Old Testament law. If you remember last week, we talked a little bit about uncleanness, that uncleanness is not always a matter of sin, right? But it it can be the sign or effects of sin even in your life, the sign of mortality or, or even partaking of something that God has forbidden. So even bleeding, right? Blood can make someone unclean or eating unclean food, touching a dead person. Childbirth, right, or even being touched by someone else who's unclean, makes you unclean. You need purification before you can go back into the presence of the Lord to worship. And so this woman, she cannot join worship. She cannot have relationships right, at risk of making everyone unclean. She can't get married or have kids. And verse 29, the last word in verse 29, uses the word disease for what she has. The word disease there is mastix. This is actually the same word that's used to describe what comes with whipping. It's both suffering and shame. That's what she has, suffering and shame. And her life, possibly since the age of 12, has been a living death. Verse 26 tells us she has spent all her money on many physicians, suffered much, but not better, Only worse things have come. But hope springs. Verse 27 through 29, she heard of Jesus and she thought, if I can only touch him, I will be made well. The word for made well here means to be healed, to be made whole, and also to be saved. And it holds all those meanings. Jesus, for her, is walking salvation just out in front of her. And she intentionally, but discreetly, pushes through this crowd in order to get near, to come from behind to Jesus. She reaches out and she touches only Jesus' clothes. And immediately, she feels that she is healed. The bleeding has stopped. In verses 30 through 32, even with all the crowd jostling Jesus, right? That's this this image of this rabble kind of being all around Jesus. Jesus. Jesus being touched by this woman in true faith felt different. Power tapped in some way. And Jesus stops in his tracks and he turns around looking. That's what it looks like. It says it twice there in those few verses. He's looking around him and he's asking, Who touched my garments? And the disciples here are exasperated with Jesus. And all the hullabaloo, they they are essentially saying, Jesus, what do you mean? Everyone is touching you. What do you mean? In verse 33, the woman, though, trembling with fear, likely wondering what will someone who is powerful enough to heal with a touch, what will he do to her? Right? This unclean, poor, despised woman. She falls before him and she confesses the whole truth. Right? The uncleanness, the bleeding, all of it, that she's been healed. And perhaps she expects punishment because she has even risked making all these other people clean. Imagine the shame. But how does Jesus respond in verse 34 he is kind daughter your faith has made you well go in peace be healed of your disease see her costly actions and her confession receives Jesus's confirmation of what she felt right her confession led to confirmation assurance of what has been done she is resurrected from a living death, right? To go and live in peace and wholeness. And notice this. Touching Jesus has not made Jesus unclean, but the reverse. Touching Jesus has made her clean. Now, we might imagine what's happening in Jairus' mind, right? This unwanted interruption, and we're on a time schedule here, but this un- unwanted interruption shows the kind of faith that is about to be required of Jairus. In verse 35, due to the interruption, this woman, Jesus doesn't make it to Jairus' daughter in time. She dies. And in verse 36, as they come to say this, Jesus, that word there, it's talking about he either ignores or refuses to listen to them. In overhearing, he refuses to listen to them, but says to Jairus, Don't fear, only believe. Verse 37, taking only Peter, James, John, and the disciples, they head to Jairus' home. And drawing near, there is this commotion of weeping and wailing and flutes playing. In that day, it was very common to have public mourners. That even when someone died, because someone would decompose quickly, you would bring the mourners immediately. And they would pay people to even do this. If you were too poor to have it, they would be provided for you. At least two mourners and one flute player was custom. And so for one who is so honored like Jairus, we might expect even more people here mourning. And drawing near, Jesus sees this entire commotion, and he says in verse 39, Why all the commotion? The child is not dead, only sleeping. In verse 40, they mock Jesus, laughing at him, because frankly, they see dead people all the time. They know when someone has died, But Jesus kicks them all out other than his disciples and her parents. And coming near, he takes this little girl's hand and he speaks in her language of Aramaic. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, immediately she does. And she begins to walk around because it says, though it calls her little, she is of the age of 12 and able to walk Around and they're all amazed, and Jesus tells them not to tell anyone, but to feed her. You see, in order for someone to eat, they must actually have all the organs and system to be able to uh, process that. Eating is the sign that she's not a ghost, she's not a spirit. She is a real person, flesh and blood, living. This is what Jesus does when he resurrects. He eats, it proves, right, that he is a real person. Truly, resurrection has taken place. See, in surveying this story again, we are to see that this passage declares that Jesus himself is the Lord of life. Jesus is the Lord of life, and he is worthy of faith that will cost you everything. As the Lord of life, he can resurrect the dead. He is yet kind, and for he is kind because he is the God of hopeless causes. You see that in your bulletin of how we work through this passage He is those three things he resurrects the dead he is kind he's the God of hopeless causes and for all those reasons he is worthy of costly faith in you so first the the true and big discovery here in this passage this is the this is what the the money is for here and this passage or rather this is where we we learn the newest thing Jesus can resurrect the dead that's what we're learning Jesus can resurrect the dead In the last two sermons, Mark has shown that Jesus is the Lord over nature, right? The wind and the waves. And last week, we learned that Jesus is Lord over the supernatural legions of demons that he cast off. But this week here, Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Lord of life and death, for that matter. Jairus' daughter was truly dead. This woman lives a daily death, well, J- Jairus had been an honored person in the community, likely having access to the, to the best physicians, to the best medicine, right, to any type of care that might be needed. But money, doctors, and medicine can't save his daughter's life. And the woman, who has suffered much at the hands of physicians, she has spent all her money on doctors. She's not gotten better, but gotten worse. So in disease and death, what we see in this passage is two helpless and hopeless people People who are in need of something impossible. Resurrection. Now that seems impossible, but if we were to go back and survey the Old Testament for just a moment. In the Old Testament, there's two great prophets who see resurrections of dead children. In 1 Kings 17, there's an only son of a widow who dies. And the prophet Elijah prays to God. He says, "O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And God answered his prayer. This boy was raised from the dead. And in 1 Kings 4, uh, Elijah's predecessor, Elisha, those are close there. In 1 Kings 4, this formerly childless woman, she has a son who dies. And Elisha prayed to the Lord God, and God resurrected this boy as well. You see, Elijah and Elisha, both are prophets, but they don't have the power to resurrect from the dead, do they? They ask God and God responds. So let's look again. Who does Jesus ask in this text to resurrect or to heal and save? The answer is no one. Jesus asks no one because from his own power and authority, Jesus says be healed and they're healed. Jesus says arise and they come to life. You see, Jesus is the Lord of life himself, able to resurrect even from the dead. And see in Mark, this is new. And the reason this is important in Mark is this is setting the stage for what is coming. You see, in just a few chapters, Jesus is going to tell them that he's going to die and rise again. And this very passage is meant to be proof for both them and us reading it, that Jesus is the Lord of life who has power over death. If he says he's going to resurrect, he will. And this is good news for anyone coming here today, Christian, non-Christian, churched, unchurched. Because in looking to Jesus, hope springs. The fountain of life or the pursuit for it is over you find it in jesus christ years ago uh, pastor matt and i when we lived overseas we were part of these english clubs where you'd practice speaking english with college students and you talk about a whole variety of topics and one week we discussed uh, funerals and customs that would be surrounding death and the i know real exciting topic that week um we would we would run out of topics real quick uh pretty quick so we would we would do a lot of topics but the first question asked in that particular group was Do people here think that death is natural or unnatural? Is it natural or unnatural? As we went around the circle, every single student said, Yes, it is natural. Of course, everyone dies. Until it finally came to the first Christian who said, No, it's not. Why do we think it's not? you think if death was so normal was so natural why why does everyone in the world respond just about the same to it agony mourning despair see even in Jesus's day they knew that death was so wrong and was such a terrible thing that they would pay public mourners to come and sing and cry for even people who had no money or no friends rather to actually come and cry for them they would pay for that death is not what should be. For all of our attempts to evade, to defeat, or push off death, whatever the cost may be, or doing this even for our loved ones, death is the enemy that for now we all will lose to. We will face a death. As much as we might try to have diets, or exercise, or vitamins, supplements, sleeping more, or exorbitant, Health insurance, so we get the right care at the right time. Those are not all bad things. But they will not keep us from death. And they will not be able to resurrect us from it either. And so for us in the face of this helplessness, you must ask, does this lead you to hopelessness? Whether the answer is yes or no, I invite you to look to the text because it's there that we find one who is able to resurrect from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, the same one who goes and dies on a cross, right? who pays for the sins of all who trust in him, the very same sins that, that brought death into the world, and he promises resurrection to all who trust in him. 1 Corinthians 15.26 says that death is the final enemy that Jesus is going to defeat. It's an enemy, and it's going to be defeated. So grasping this truth about Jesus Christ will drive you, will drive you to have costly faith in him. Faith that would drive you to push through any crowd to get to him, to face any shame just to have his touch. Faith in Jesus will cost you giving up every other attempt to live for anything else. It will also give you the author of life himself, the one who can resurrect you from the dead resolve today i must have jesus no matter the cost i must hear his word have his touch have the lord of life no matter the cost well, when people of power feel their power being threatened as we see in this text or seeing this in our second point here when when people of power feel their power threatened taken or drawn upon how do they react see they are ferocious They are cruel. They are often exacting in their response. Look at almost any political system throughout all of history. Threaten their power, and what do you get? Watch any political news network for five minutes. One insult flies, we better spend 30 minutes on trying to dismantle that person who said it. But Jesus, Jesus with all the power over life and death, is never threatened. He is never unrighteously angry. Instead, he is kind. You cannot threaten his power. And you can have costly faith in that kind of Lord. Way back in Mark 1, Jesus made clear that he was on a mission. That he is marching somewhere. He's preaching about the kingdom of God and saying for everybody to repent and to believe in him, the very king. His healings, his exercising of demons, all these things are validations showing Jesus is the king. And his message is legitimate. So Jesus isn't just moseying about. He's not lollygagging as though he has no purpose. He is on a precise aim and goal, and the fate of the world literally rests on his shoulders. So what happens while he's on this mission when Jesus is interrupted? How does Jesus respond? Is he like you or me? Children know this. When you interrupt mom and dad doing things, sometimes... They might bark at you, or they might give you a real serious eye, please stop. Right? Jesus, though, never does this. Jesus is able to be interrupted. He gives no deep sighs, gives no scary looks. Jesus is kind. As he's flanked by the crowds, likely preaching, remember Jairus pushes through, bursts through, falls down, interrupts Jesus. And Jesus goes with him with not a single harumph. And on the way, Jesus is interrupted by the touch of an unclean, lower-class, despised woman. And Jesus knew that he was touched. It said power went out from him. He had healed somebody, but he he doesn't continue on. He stops. Why? It's because Jesus is not a lottery slot machine that you pull the lever in hopes of getting what you want from him. Nor is he a free loan bank who hands out healings and prosperity whenever you ask for it. No, he stops because Jesus desires a personal encounter with this woman. She knows, she knows what powerful people are like. And she falls trembling and terrified before Jesus. Ashamed. But Jesus the king, what does he call her? Daughter. Daughter. As a woman or a girl here today, is there any more precious name to be called by the Lord himself but daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Be healed of the mastics, the suffering and shame that has coated your life. See, Jesus is not kind to one type of person in this passage. He's not kind to those who mock and laugh at him, right? doubting his power. Instead, he kicks them out. But then his kindness continues to another daughter. He comes near. He holds her hand. He speaks in her language, which may have been the common language that the Jews would have spoken in Aramaic, but, it, but Mark makes a point here. He spoke in her language. And he told her to arise, and she came to life. See, Jesus is not only all-powerful, he's not only all-good, But he's also all kind. He is so kind. And I want you to notice this as well. It doesn't matter if you're high class and honored, like Jairus, or you're low class and considered trash, like this woman, or even very ignorable, like this young girl. But Jesus is willing to be interrupted by you. You cannot threaten his power, his goodness, or kindness, nor can you jeopardize his plan. You can't upend it in any way. His mission is aimed at resurrecting you. His mission is surrounded in glorifying God, but with you in the sights as well. If you were to guess uh, what is the most repeated phrase that I hear from, uh, from you lovely people in the church, what would you guess? And it's not do better. Uh, you might think that, <laughs> but no one says that. Um, what the phrase is is, Pastor, I don't want to bother you. Pastor, I know you're busy. You say this because you know that Pastor Matt and I are human. And you are right. I cannot give you care without stopping something else. But Jesus can. You asking Jesus for anything else. Never stops him from doing something else. you never draw him away from anything else with pastors and elders it 's our very calling to care for you it 's your right and privilege as an elder that we 'd pray for you that we 'd preach to you that we'd apply the word to you that we 'd be attentive to you because that 's what the chief shepherd calls us to. You should expect that keep asking it 's no bother you don 't even have to preface it but see here that unlike your pastors and elders elders in the in the future lord willing jesus can be interrupted always and he never falters in anything else he's doing he upholds the universe and yet your hushed cries your real pain and distress the adjectives verbs and nouns that you choose to use in prayer he is leaning in to hear he knows your language and he's listening He is the better pastor, the better elder, the perfect shepherd, the Lord of life himself, and he is so kind to those who trust him. You can always go to him. And if you this morning will believe this, if you will lay hold of this truth, it doesn't mean that he's only worthy of costly faith, but you want to have faith in a God like this. You can trust him. His shoulders bear the weight of the world, but his attention is ready to be interrupted by the helpless and the hopeless, like you and I. So this morning, come not to Jesus as though he is a slot machine, not as though he is a free loan bank, but come knowing he's kind and knowing that what Jesus wants from you is a personal encounter. Jesus wants a personal encounter. Any real relationship with a person is based not on what you can get from them, but I'm getting them. And that is the same with God, the Lord of life. God seeks to have you spilling his blood to have it. And you are to seek no less, to have him. You can come to the one who is so kind and have costly faith in doing so. Well, ultimately, we must, we must, we must have costly faith in Christ Because as he is the one who is the Lord of life, he is also the God of hopeless causes. What is more hopeless than a dead daughter? What is more hopeless than an unclean, outcast, low class, poor, sick, and dying woman? What is clear for both the woman and Jairus, for the sake of his daughter, that is, is that their circumstances convince them of something. They are helpless. They are hopeless without Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, uh, he says in his book, The Problem of Pain, he has a, he has a short quote, everyone knows, but it's part of a longer, a longer quote. He says this, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain gives the only opportunity for the, the bad man, he says, maybe the, the sinner, to have amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. That's what he says. Lewis is saying that pleasures in life are not certain to point us to God, that we would know that they're from him, even though he's made them for enjoyment. But he's saying pain, struggle, human despair... God uses these as a megaphone in our lives to, store, to stir our dead-in-sin souls. And to be clear, Psalm 5.4, it says this, God does not take delight in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with him. Right? He doesn't, does not like evil, cannot dwell with evil. He doesn't delight in pain or suffering insofar as it is evil. But God redeems and he uses pain as a skillful, instrument in our lives our suffering often awakens our souls so that we know that we are mortals that we are hopeless causes we are not God we are without help God loves us so dearly that even pain mortality human despair will not go wasted but he will redeem even those the glory to come is not worth comparing with the sufferings that we face in this life. And the one response that we are to have in the face of such things is to be driven to the Lord of life who resurrects the dead, who is kind, and who is the God of hopeless causes. We see this in Jairus. We see this in the woman. They forego everything else. Jairus, who is honored, accepts being mocked and laughed at with Jesus. The woman pushes through the crowd, risks exposing her shame and making everyone else unclean just to get to Jesus. One clarification for us this morning as we talk about costly faith is at times we hear, or people will hear Jesus' statement of, your faith has made you well. And they say, well, if you're sick and not getting better, that's on you. You see, Jesus would help you, but you lack the faith. Do you see where the emphasis is? In that faith is made into a work that you must do in order to get God to do something no faith is not a work to be done faith is not a work to be done the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 86 says this faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace an undeserved gift a saving grace whereby we receive and rest Upon him alone for salvation, as he's offered to us in the gospel, receive and rest. The language of faith is not doing. The failure to be healed is not in you. The thing with healing, and when we speak about this, for, is that our healing is, is always secondary to what God wants to produce in saving faith in us. It's based upon the very will of God and his perfect timing. We're not guaranteed that in this life. You see, the type of faith that this woman in Jairus had in the end was not that Jesus could just give them life now, healed body and ease now, but that Jesus was and is life himself. So we should not and cannot demand or expect healing of our sick bodies in this life. It's based again on the will of God, the glory of God, and ultimately what God wants to do to draw us to himself for a personal encounter that we'd have costly faith, that we'd be resurrected. That's where these things aim towards. Human health is secondary to that. Costly faith in Christ in this life will mean acknowledging that even your human despair is a great opportunity for God to draw you to himself. And it's also to position you to respond like the woman who, do you notice the verbs? She heard, came, touched, right? Or maybe we're a lot more like the girl. Dead, dead in sin, and Jesus comes and speaks over us, takes our hand and brings us to life. Costly faith for you this morning means simply receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone, not fearing, only believing in him because he is the God of hopeless causes like you and me. In closing, there uh, there was a man who, who loved God greatly and sinned greatly. It could be describing any one of us. But he was one in the Old Testament who lied, cheat, took another man's wife and killed her husband. But in repentance and costly faith, he writes a song. And there's one line in it. He says, Your unfailing love is better than life itself. Oh, how I will praise you. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. That man was King David. The song is Psalm 63. But in that line, what we see is that he, nor you, nor I need to search for any other fountain of life. We need no other fountain of life because we can have life itself in the Lord whose unfailing love, David says, is better than all this life could ever offer. Steadfast love, better than life in sickness and in health or whatever should come. Jesus, the Lord of life, promises you eternal resurrection. He is kind and interruptible by you because he ultimately... Is the God of hopeless causes. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the kindness of Jesus Christ to a dead girl and to a shame and shameful and suffering woman. Jesus, we thank you that you showed such kindness and such power and that you, with a word and a touch, bring to life. God, I pray for the people here in this room. Lord Jesus, this morning that you, would call them, that they'd hear, come, touch. They'd hear, arise, and they'd come and believe in you. God, you are the Lord of life. We look to you and you alone. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.